So we've been engaged in this study. Tonight's our fourth study, our fourth week within this study. Hebrews, the better letter. And uh, we've been going through many of the themes throughout the first section of Hebrews. But tonight, as we start, I want to go ahead and look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is one of my favorite verses. I can hear my granddad preaching it uh, every time I read it because of the way he preaches. It's, it, it'll preach, as they say. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus. The idea that's being uh, covered here with this idea of looking unto Jesus is fixing our eyes on Jesus to a way that we cannot be, our eyes cannot be moved. They are fixed upon Jesus. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey here, that we need to be fixing our eyes, we need to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Is it not what we've been doing in the past four weeks? We've been looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, Jesus who is better than the prophets, Jesus who is better than the angels, Jesus who is better than Moses. Tonight we're going to be looking how Jesus provides a better rest than Joshua, and later Jesus is a better high priest, and the list goes on and on. Fixing our eyes onto Jesus, and why do we look at Jesus? Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Well, the verse tells us it's not really just because He is better than. Of course, we should look at Him because He's better than, because this is the better letter, because of all the things we've talked about. But also we should look to Jesus because He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. He is the one who endured the cross. He is the one who despised the shame. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews is saying, stop looking at these men. Stop looking at these angels, at the prophets, at Moses, and start looking unto Jesus. That's the, perfect, the purpose of the book, is it not? The purpose of the book is to show them the old law right up next to the new law, and allow them to see without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is better. To convict, to convince, like we've talked about the last few weeks. Last week, if you weren't able to be with us, we talked about how Jesus is better than Moses. Last week we talked about uh, this man who is atop the celebrity ladder of the first century Jewish culture, right? Moses, and how he compares to Jesus. And we talked about uh, how Moses was faithful in all of his house. You can look there in chapter 3 as we talk about this and summarize this a little bit if you weren't here. We talked about how Moses was faithful in all of his house, but that Jesus is greater than Moses because he was the one who built the house. 
We talked about how Moses was an apostle to the nation of Israel. But Jesus is better because he is an apostle to all nations. We talked about how Moses was faithful as a special servant. Remember that conversation about how he was not only a servant, he was a special servant. But Jesus is better than because he was faithful as a son. And we learned that the same way the Israelites hardened their hearts, they rebelled, they tested, they tried God, they went astray, they didn't know God. We learned that there will be some who will do the same with Jesus. Finally, we talked about in our period of application about how Jesus is calling us to be faithful to the end. And we saw from verses 6 and 14 of Hebrews chapter 3 the importance of being faithful to the end. And with that, tonight we're going to be talking about how Jesus gives, Jesus provides a better rest than Joshua. A better rest than Joshua. Remember, you know, the first week of the class, let me, that's the announcements, we're good. The first week of the class, we talked about how the greatest supplemental uh, book that you could be reading uh, in your effort to learn more about the book of Hebrews was what? The Old Testament. The Old Testament is the greatest supplemental reading to better understand Hebrews. And that's exactly what we're going to do to start out this class, this study tonight. We're going to dive in to some of what the Old Testament says about the rest of Joshua. The rest that Joshua provided back in the Old Testament. We need to go back and remember kind of the context of, of what's going on and understanding why the Hebrews writer thought it was that important to mention, that important to talk about. Well, if we don't understand the Old Testament and what happened there, we won't understand fully what's going on in Hebrews chapter 4. So we need to get a little background of Joshua's rest, the land of Canaan. What's this a picture of? Milk and honey, right? The land of milk and honey. I can't tell you how hard that was to find as a picture. Uh, you got a lot of milk and you got a lot of honey and you don't have a lot of them together, but I found it. Milk and honey. The land flowing with milk and with honey. That's how the land of Canaan was described. And we're going to be talking about this rest in the land of Canaan. You know, you ask the question... What do you mean by the rest of Joshua? Well, no, we're not talking about the rest of the book, or we're not talking about anything else, but the respite, right? The, the rest, the return to the promised land, the end of the exodus, the, the true fulfillment of everything Moses was trying to do, the point where, you know, we talked about Sunday night in the ministers of the round table, that Joseph's bones were finally returned to his land of his fathers, right? You can find that in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 32. That hundreds and hundreds of years later, that prophecy that, jo that Joseph gave is fulfilled there. We're talking about the rest that came from entering this promised land. This land of milk and honey, the land that the Hebrew nation had dreamed about and meditated about for hundreds of years. This land of rest, this land of promise that while they were in Egyptian bondage, they probably thought about. The legend, the, the, the tales of that land probably were talked about. And one day, we're going to be delivered. We're going to be returned. 
back to the land of our forefathers. This is the land that we're talking about, this land of Canaan that they were heading towards for 40 years. Have you ever had a trip that took 40 years? No. Sometimes it takes 40 hours to get to Atlanta, but not 40 years, right? These Israelites were traveling for 40 years in wandering in the wilderness. And what happened there? Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 17, last week we talked about how millions, potentially millions of lives were lost in the wilderness. It says that their corpses were laying there, their bodies fell in this wilderness. Think of the overwhelming sense of relief. Have you ever thought of this? The moment that they finally conquered all the lands, all of the armies surrounding Canaan, and they were able to finally enter into the rest, the promised land of the Lord. Can you imagine the emotion that they felt? Imagine Joshua and Caleb, and, and that's it, right? That remembered what it was like to be in Egypt. Because everyone else had, had, had died. Can you imagine the emotion that they felt in finally being able? Moses is gone. Moses is not, no longer with them. And they're able to enter into this promised land that they've been going towards for so long. And it's, as an Israelite, imagine how great it was. No more manna, right? <laughs> no, no more manna. We got milk and honey now. No more wandering. No more wilderness. No more... Uh, Sun beating down on them. No more death. All they had before them was rest. All they had before them was this metaphorical salvation, right? In the Old Testament, the land of promise, the land of Canaan is, is symbolic, is metaphorical of salvation in and of itself. That if we can just get to the land of promise, if we can just get to the land of Canaan, then God will save us, then God will be with us again. This is the land that God allowed Moses to look at, remember? In Deuteronomy chapter 34, we see that Moses is allowed to go up to Mount Nebo and look at across all the land of promise. But he couldn't enter it. Because of the mistake that he made, he was not allowed to go into it, but God allowed him to see it. He showed him the land of promise, allowed him to witness its beauty and what happens soon after? He dies. Soon after seeing its glory, its, its beauty, Moses dies there, and it's almost like his mission was completed. His mission was accomplished. The thing for which he was commissioned and became an apostle had been complete, and so his mission, his work, was complete. He could now go and be with God. He, he, he brought them to the precipice of this promised land, fulfilled the reason for which he was sent, and now he could die. Did he die of old age? Did he die because he was uh, old and shriveled up? No. In fact, the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 34, he died at the age of 120 years old. In fact, it says that his eyes were not dim, and his natural vigor was not diminished. It was just his time. In fact, the Bible says that he died according to the word of the Lord. And that was the only reason given. 
This is the promised land that we're talking about. This, this great land that the entire Exodus is leading towards. And finally, you think about this rest that they experience. This final uh, uh, ability to quit wandering, quit walking, and to, and to stay in one place as a people and to find this rest. You know, after Moses died, we know who took his place, right? We know that Joshua was the one who took Moses' place. In fact, in Joshua chapter 1, we see a very similar thing to what happens in Exodus chapter 3. In Joshua chapter 1, we see that God commissions Joshua to now be the leader of his people. The same way he commissioned Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. And though it may have taken a while for for even Joshua to get into the promised land for the rest because of all the battles he had to do and lead the Israelites through, it might have taken a, a few chapters, it might have taken a few battles, but finally in Joshua chapter 21, they're there. You can turn there in Joshua chapter 21 to see how God fulfilled His promise finally through Joshua, through the nation of Israel, in chapter 21 and verse 43. 21 and verse 43, it says, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which He had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they dwelt in it, and the Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that He had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand, Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Here we see that God fulfilled His promise, did He not? God fulfilled His promise and He says that He gave them rest all around. Not a word of the good things that God promised did not come to pass. All things came to pass. You know, this was prophesied about. God prophesied. He told Abraham exactly what was going to happen, did he not? Back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, before Abram, Abraham was even Abraham. He was still Abram at this point. Before Isaac was born, before Jacob was born, before Joseph was born, before the Egyptian bondage, before any of this happens, in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Moses exactly how it's going to go down. It says, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and they will serve them. And they will afflict them four hundred years, and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Here is the fulfillment of that prophecy hundreds of years before it took place. You see, the Israelites were the people of God. And when they enter this land of of promise in in Joshua chapter 21, they are finally at rest. They're at peace. Not a single thing to worry about because God had provided them everything that He had promised. And not a single word had been left unfulfilled. Do you see the picture we're painting tonight of the rest that Joshua provided the people of Israel? That God, through Joshua, provided. What an amazing image it is to think about this final culmination of peace and rest that we see. And can't you understand how a first century Jewish culture would long for such a rest? Why is that, Ben? Why would the first century Jewish culture care about rest? 
Well, because they had had the most tumultuous 400 years themselves, had they not, during the intertestamental period, where they had been tossed to and fro by nation and another nation, Babylon, Persia, Greek, Rome, here's Rome, they're in charge now. Really makes you laugh at the guy who said, we've been in bondage to no one to Jesus. I don't know how Jesus didn't just laugh him in the face. You've been in bondage for 400 years. Same way the Israelites were in bondage for 400 years. And so we know that they were looking for an earthly king to save them, were they not? They were looking for Jesus to be the Messiah that would come and overthrow Rome. They're looking for the ability to go back to the rest, this, this peace this tranquility, this land flowing of milk and honey, right? They want to go back. That's exactly the culture and the context surrounding the first century Jewish society. They thought that the rest of Joshua was the ultimate rest, right? But they were wrong. They had heard about it for their entire lives, and the Hebrews writer is going to talk about something way, way greater in our text tonight in Hebrews chapter 4 as we discuss how Jesus provides a greater rest than the rest of Joshua. Remember the context before we start in chapter 4 of what's going on at the end of chapter 3, right? At the end of chapter 3, we talked about it last week. The writer has just talked about how the ones who rebelled against Moses, against God, they could not enter the rest of Canaan. This rest that Joshua provided, that God provided through Joshua, they could not enter. And why could they not enter? It says, because of their unbelief. Verse 19. Remember that context for tonight. Here comes chapter 4. Go ahead and read the first couple of verses. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. First two verses there. Remember back in the end of chapter 3, we just talked about it. Here is this rest of Canaan. Here is this rest that Joshua provides. Chapter 4, the rest is still available. The rest still remains. The ESV, I believe it says, the rest still stands. It still stands. It's still available. What rest is he talking about? Is he talking about Canaan still? Is he, is he still referring to the, the rest that Joshua provided? No, he's referring to a much greater rest. A much greater peace, a much greater place. He is talking about the resting place of God, the dwelling place of God, heaven above. That's exactly what he's talking about in chapter 4, and this is, the, this is what he's juxtapositioning, right? Juxtaposing. There it is. I got the nod. That means I'm right. Juxtaposing. He's putting these side by side and he's saying, we don't need to miss this one. What does he say? Lest, uh, let us fear, lest any of you seem to come up short of it. A quick note about this, let us. Some have called Hebrews the let us letter. The let us letter. You know why? It's, it's 13 times in Hebrews and it's, it's giving this sense of urgency. It's also the, the Hebrews writer talking about how it, it, we are in this together. Let us. 
Let us. And then he says what he has to say. What does he say this time? Let us fear, lest any of you seem to come up short of it. What's he saying here? He's saying that we need to fear. We need, we need to wake up. My mom used to say, when you straighten up and fly right. What's that mean? You need to straighten up. You're not acting right. You're not obeying. You're not listening. You're not believing like you should. And so the Hebrews writer is saying, let us fear lest any of you should come up short of it. Why do they need to wake up? Why do they need to fear? Because there were some at risk of coming up short. I believe he's trying to tell them that this is a rest you don't want to miss. This is a place, this is the land of promise that if you miss this one, there's no coming back from it. As we know, he, he talks about these people who, in chapter 3 who missed out on Joshua's land. Joshua's land of promise. They missed out on this rest because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience. And he's trying to say, don't miss this one. An entire generation of our people missed the last one, and we don't need to be like them. Verse 2, this gospel was preached to us as well as to them. What's this gospel? Was the Israelites preached the gospel of Jesus? No, he's saying good news. The word gospel means good news. And what he's trying to say is that the good news of the promised land was preached to those Israelites. And it wasn't enough, was it? They knew it was good news. They knew it was a good land. They knew it was milk and honey. They knew all the great things there. And it wasn't enough to keep them believing. It wasn't enough to keep them obedient. And their corpses fell in the wilderness. Chapter 3 and verse 17, right? He's trying to say the gospel has been preached to us. We've been given this good news of a better land. A better land of rest. A better land of promise. And we're just as close to missing out on it as they did. He's trying to wake them up, right? He's trying to say you don't want to miss this one. This same news has been preached to us as Christians. As we read about last week, uh, even though they were promised this rest, this metaphorical salvation, they, they, they gave up on it. And he's trying to say, are we going to do this again? Are we really going to be guilty of missing out on this second rest that God has provided for us? He's trying to wake them up. This passage says it right here. It says it was of no profit. Why was it of no profit to them? Well, it was of no profit because it wasn't mixed in faith. It wasn't mixed with faith. They just heard it. They just showed up and listened. They just listened to Moses. They just listened to all the leaders, and they didn't take it within themselves, did they? Boy, what's the parallel there today? We can come, we can listen, we can be present when the truth is being told, and we can go out and live a totally different thing, right? We can come punch our ticket, make sure that everyone saw us, make sure we fill out the attendance card, and then leave and have it never affect our lives. That's exactly what I think happened to the Israelites. They heard the truth, they knew the truth, they knew Moses was right, and they didn't do anything about it. And they didn't listen and take it in for themselves. With that, let's go ahead and read verses 3 through 7. 3 through 7 says, For we who have believed do enter that rest, 
as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the, war, of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and to those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verses 3 through 7. So who were the ones who have believed? Verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Who are the ones who have believed? I thought all of them died, right? Back in the Israelite, we talked about 3 verse 17. They all fell in the wilderness, all the corpses. Who are the ones that believed? Did all of them die? No. The ones who believed were able to enter into the rest. And who were they? Joshua and Caleb. So the one who provided this rest through God, Joshua, was one of the ones who believed. Who was the other one? Caleb. And we see Caleb all the way in the book of Joshua uh, getting to inherit the land. Because he believed. Because Joshua believed they were able to enter in. He's saying those who believed entered, but those who did not believe, what does he say? So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This quote from God. That's, that was the... That was the destiny, the fate of those who did not believe. God swore that they would not enter. What's this idea of God's rest? What's this idea of from the foundation of the world? What's he trying to say? Well, I believe he's trying to say from the foundation of the world, from the very beginning, from the beginning of time, God has set a pattern that he believes in rest. Let's talk about that for a second. God believes in rest. What does He do right after He creates the world? In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2, He rested. God Himself rested on the seventh day to show us this pattern that we should follow as well. What does He do in the law of Moses? He tells them that they need a Sabbath day of rest, that on the Sabbath day they need to rest, Exodus chapter 20. What do we see when it comes to this rest of Joshua? We've been talking about it all afternoon. All afternoon. In Matthew chapter, 20, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, we see that the Christian has a rest. When we come to Jesus, come all those who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus provides rest for the Christian in everyday life. But what is the ultimate rest? What is the ultimate day of rest? What is the ultimate place, this promised land? It's heaven. We can read about that rest in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. God has laid a foundation that He believes in rest, that He wants His people to have rest. And this is exactly what He's going to talk about over the next few verses. He brings up this, this quote from David in Psalm 95. He's, ex, he's going to outline that exact thought in the next few sentences there, in the next few verses. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 4 verses 8 through 10 to see a little bit of what that quote from David means. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. 
For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. What's he trying to say here? The writer brings up exactly what David said to show that there is still, there was still a rest to come. When David talks about this in this quote from Psalm 95, he is relating to a rest that is to come. Why would he bring up this rest that was to come if the rest that Joshua was providing was enough? No, it wasn't enough. It wasn't final. It wasn't the end rest. So David says that there is a rest to come. Notice what he says here, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. He's saying Joshua's rest was temporary. And obviously it was temporary, was it not? In the very next chapter, they were overthrown by the Assyrians, by the Philistines, by the Amorites and Perez and all the Ites, right? And all throughout the book of Judges, we see that they're conquered and, and we need a judge to come save them again. It was obviously a temporary rest because the people no longer believed and they were fallen the same way the Israelites were in the wilderness, right? If Joshua had given them rest. Let's look at this word Joshua. What's the relationship between Joshua and Jesus? Joshua was the one who provided the rest. Jesus is the one who provides the rest. But some might, understand, might not know this, might not have ever heard this. I believe if you've been listening, you've probably heard it, if you've been in the church long enough, that the word Joshua and the name, the name Joshua and the name Jesus is the same name. Did you know that? The, word, the name Joshua, uh, the, let's see this. Let's see my notes. Let me read it now or I don't mess up. Many of you may not know the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua is Jesus. The Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua is Jesus, Yeshua. That's exactly the same name. It's interesting to note that the two providers of rest in the Bible have the same name. Isn't that a cool correlation? Joshua and Jesus. But nevertheless, verse 9, let's look at it. It says, there remains a rest for the people of God. There remains a rest. What is this rest for the people of God? He's saying, listen, if you want rest, if you really want a rest from this captivity to Rome, if you really want a rest from your sin, from everything of this world, it's not going to come through Joshua. It's going to come through Jesus. Why? Verse 10. The one who offers the rest has already entered into it and has ceased from his working. He's already come. Jesus has already come, the Messiah has already come, the provider of the rest has already come, and if you miss it, if you look for someone else, don't hold your breath. Because the rest has already been provided. Let's continue in verse 11 through 13. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and is powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden 
from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. How's this passage start out? Let us. Here's the urgency again. Here's the empathy again. Here's the we're in this together, the united front that he's putting across, that we have got to accomplish this together. We have got to be diligent to enter into that rest. Why? Lest any one of us fall. According to the same example of disobedience of who? The Israelites. Yet again, we're seeing, he's saying, we are just this close from being just like the Israelites who fell in the wilderness, who did not obey in the wilderness, and give the same example of disobedience. How will we know obedience? If we know that they were disobedient, how are we going to know what obedience is? How are we going, if we know that they did not enter because of unbelief, 3 and verse 19, how are we going to know what to believe? How are we going to know what we should obey? Verse 12, for the word of God is living and is powerful. And the list goes on. The Word of God is how we are to be obedient, how we know how to be obedient, how we know what to believe. The Word of God does that. Just think about what the Word of God does. What this, what this passage says the Word of God is. The Word of God is living. What does that mean? It means it's always applying to our life. It's always changing in our own hearts and minds when it comes to what it means and what it applies and how it affects our life. No, it's not getting amended. It's not getting changed as far as what's in here. But it is constantly changing to what it means to me, and what it means to you, and what it, how it applies to our life. It's living. What else is it? It's powerful. It's powerful. It's, it's God's power unto salvation. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The word of God is the power. What else is it? It's sharp. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The idea of a two-edged sword is it goes in, it hurts. It comes out, it hurts. The same way it goes in and affects us, that when it comes out of us and out of our mouth, it affects those who hear. That's that idea of a sharper than any two-edged sword. What else is it? It's piercing. It pierces into the deepest, most inner parts of yourself. In the joints, in the marrow, in the soul, in the spirit. What else does it do? It discerns the intents of the heart. That's a powerful book, isn't it? No other book can claim these things. No other book can claim any of these things the way the Bible can. Because of this living, powerful, sharper, piercing, discerning word, verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What's he saying? 
What's he saying in this passage? All things are naked and open to him. What, what, what does that mean? I believe he's trying to say the same way that God heard all the complaints of the Israelites, every single one of them, day by day by day in the wilderness. He hears ours. He hears our complaints. He hears our grumblings. He hears our complainings every single day. I believe he's saying the same way that God was able to witness the unfaithfulness of the Israelites, every single one of them, every single one of them that disobeyed and did not believe and were rebellious. God is able to witness every single one of us who is unfaithful, who is unbelieving, who is rebellious. What else is he saying? I think he's saying that God through our response to the Word, is able to hear the complaints. Through our response to the Word, He is able to witness our unfaithfulness. How we respond to the Word is what indicates our heart. And that is why we must give an account. We must give an account to the One who knows all, who before Him everything is naked and open. Nothing is hidden from His sight. And guess what? You want to know how that account's going to go? How that encounter with God's going to go? Well, it depends on how you respond, how you responded to His Word. If you responded to His Word in a way that is good, then nothing is to be afraid of. But if you responded to His Word in a way that is not good, in the way that the Israelites did when they received the good news, then we saw what happened to them. The Word of God reveals our heart. We're going to talk about that more in a second. If you will allow me, I understand that there are three more verses in this chapter. We're going to try to uh, do it whole chapter each night, right? Well, I want to save these three verses for next week because I believe uh, this is one of those moments where it's pretty obvious that men were the ones who created the chapters and verses and divisions because uh, I believe it makes more sense to go along with chapter 5 and chapter 7 especially uh, to talk about Jesus as the high priest, right? Jesus is a sympathizing high priest. Well, that makes more sense to talk about uh, when we're talking about high priesthood instead of the rest of Joshua. So we're going to Save those verses, uh, and honestly, to be honest with you, I don't think verses 12 and 13 could be given the good justice that they deserved if uh, we were also to try to talk about verses 14 through 16, but through 16 by slamming them together. Uh, I believe they deserve their own lessons, their own applications, so we're going to do that next week. But where does that leave us in verse 13 at the end of it? In verse 13, where does that leave us in our study of Hebrews? Well, it obviously leaves us to the point we started out with that Jesus gives, He provides a better rest than Joshua. Why? What does this mean to the original readers of Hebrews? What would this lesson, what would this, this topic mean to someone who read this in the first century Jewish culture? 
this lesson would have taught them that Joshua was temporary. Jesus is everlasting. Joshua's rest was flawed because where was it? It was on earth. Jesus' rest is not flawed. It is perfect in heaven. It would have told the original audience that Joshua's rest was for the Hebrew faithful. And that Jesus' rest is for all nations and for all the faithful. It would have told the original audience that Joshua's was for this life. And Jesus' rest is for the life to come. What a powerful message. It would have told them that if they wanted a rest from their sin, a rest from their captivity to Rome, their daily lives, if they wanted a rest, that that rest was available for them through Jesus. Not through Joshua, not through a man, but through the Son of Man. That's exactly what it meant to the original audience. The original readers of Hebrews. But what does it mean to us tonight? What does this thought mean to us tonight? What does it mean to us thousands of years later? Tonight I believe there are two takeaways that we can take away into our life from these 13 verses. Something to be learned for all of us. I believe that the same message, basically, that the original audience got could be applied to us. Number one, if we want the ability to rest from our trials, from our troubles and, and, and tribulation, if we want that same rest, then we've got to go through Jesus to get it. Then we've got to go through Jesus the same way this original audience had to go through Jesus. What, is, what do we know about Jesus? John chapter 14 and verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And without Him, none of us are able to get there on our own. What does Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 say? Paul would say, For through Him, through Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Who's the both? The Gentiles and the Jews. We have access to the Father. Through who? Jesus. If we want the rest that is talked about in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, we're going to have to go through Jesus. And it doesn't matter how much innate goodness you have. It doesn't matter how much innate righteousness that you may think that you possess. You're not going to be able to get to the Father on your own. And why is that? Romans 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and verse 10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we can't get there on our own. We deserve this, this, this wage of sin, this payment. What is the payment of our sin? It is death. 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. In that Romans 5 verse 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. The same way the Israelites' unbelief and disobedience kept them out of the promised land and rest of Canaan, if we do not believe, and if we are not obedient, then that will keep us out of the promised land of heaven. And that's just the bottom line. That's number one. If we want the rest of heaven, then we've got to go through Jesus. Why? Hebrews 12. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. What's the second application? Number two. The second application is about this verse 12 and verse 13. My question tonight for all of us, all of us here as an audience tonight, and all of us listening online, my question for all of us is what will the Word of God reveal about us one day? What is the Word of God going to reveal about Ben Hogan one day? Let's reread verses 12 through 13. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. You know, it wasn't until I was studying for this class this week that I looked at verse 12, especially in the context of what's going on around it. What is verse 12? Verse 12 is one of those top five verses, is it not? If we're going to, go to, if we're going to show someone how powerful the Word of God is, if we're having a Bible study with someone and we're trying to let them show them and have them understand how great the Word of God is, where are we going to take them? Right? We're going to take them to 2 Timothy 3 and 16 and 17. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for proof, correction, instruction, right? right? We're going to go to 2 Timothy 3.16. If we're not going to go to that one, where are we going to go? Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, right? Why? Because of how great this passage is. This passage sums up the Bible perfectly, does it not? But when was the last time we looked at this scripture? in the context of what's going on in this whole chapter. That's what we're going to do for the next few moments. What's he trying to say in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12? The writer is, is saying that not only is the Word of God powerful, not only is the Word of God great, but the Word of God is able to discern your thoughts, and your intents. Have you ever thought of that? We know that God is able to look at the heart of man. God tells us that He does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart of man. But ever thought about the Word of God being able to discern your heart? Being able to discern and judge your intents and your thoughts? How is it able to do that? How could a book be able to do that? Let me explain it this way. 
if we hear the Word of God, if we hear the good news of Christ, if we hear this message of Hebrews, and we walk away having not allowed it to change us, having not allowed us, allowed the Word to, to mold us and affect us, you know what we've revealed about ourselves? That we have a heart problem. If we look at the Word of God and we aren't willing to change, and we aren't willing to let it apply to our life, we have a heart problem. Why? Because the Word of God is living. It should affect you. It is powerful. It should change you. It is piercing. It should go into the deepest parts of you, into the joints, into the marrow, into the soul, into the spirit. And lastly, it will discern you. It will be able to see into your heart, into your mind, and how you feel about what it is saying. If we have a heart problem, it might be because we don't want to listen to what the Word of God is saying. The question is, when the Word of God is telling us to change, when the Word of God is, is stepping on our toes, we call it, right? Well, preacher, you really stepped on my toes tonight. When it's stepping on our toes, how do we respond? When it's a little too, too, uh, too, too close to home, some might say, how do we respond? Do we get mad at the preacher? Do we get mad at the person communicating it? Do we, do we shoot the messenger, so to speak? Do we go up to him and say, how could you say that? How could you talk about that? How dare you talk about that and spend our time talking about that? Well, was it in the Word of God? Was His message surrounded by the Word of God and Scripture? How dare we go to the preacher and get on to him for that when he's just communicating God's Word? Do we get mad? Do, do, do we shut down and never listen to another word that preacher says? Do we hold a grudge because he was simply communicating the Word of God? Do we stop our ears? The people in Stephen's day, when he preached that sermon, what did they do? They literally stopped their ears. Do we stop our ears and just wait? Well, next week he'll probably talk about something that's a little easier. I like that one. If this is how we respond to the Word of God being preached, if this is how we respond to the Word of God being taught, then we have revealed a heart problem. The Word of God is able to discern that heart problem based on how we respond to the Word of God. Here's, you ever heard this? Oh, I'll just come back. I'll come back to services whenever he's talking about something that's good. Whenever he's talking about you know, something that you know, really matters. 
Oh, I heard there's going to be this series coming up. Uh, I don't want to be a part of that. A little too uncomfortable for me. Oh, we're going to be talking about something that's uncomfortable. I'll just wait till the series is over, till he's talking about love, until he's back in a book and has a series on Philippians. I don't want to talk about something that's really, you know, impacting my life today. I don't want to talk about something that's, you know, in the media. I don't want to talk about politics. I don't want to talk about anything that doesn't have to do with something that I'm comfortable with. Oh man, Kyle's talking about something that is calling me to change. Calling me to change my life instead of the people around me to change their lives. I'd rather him just talk about the people around me than what I need to change in my life. I'll just wait till he's stepping on someone else's toes. Brethren, if we come into the study of God's Word with this mindset, it may be hidden within us for years. We may put it off and not let anyone know that we feel this way. No one will know that we feel this way unless we go up and tell Kyle we feel this way. No one will know that, that, that we have these feelings and we'll just keep it within ourselves. No one will know that this is the case. What does verse 13 say? There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We can't hide it from God. If we have a heart problem, and if we don't respond to the Word of God and let it come into our joints and marrow and soul and spirit, then God is going to know about it. You cannot fool Him. You know, we often come to this text in verse 12. You know, we come to this verse and we're like, The Word of God, it's living, it's powerful, it's sharp. Yay, Bible! But then when it starts talking about its piercing, it pierces into the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Eh, don't like that. I don't want nothing piercing me. I don't want anything going in my joints and in my marrow. I don't want going anything in my soul and spirit. I just want to keep it on a surface level. I want to come, I want to feel good, and I want to leave, and I want to feel good. Does it work that way? No. The Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, sometimes we like half of this verse. I'll take on half of this verse. I, I fully believe the Word of God is living and powerful. I'll even say it's sharp. But I don't want it to be piercing. I don't want it to discern. I'll let that, the Bible do that to someone else. I'll let the Bible discern someone else. I'll let the Bible pierce someone else. I won't let it pierce myself. 
The problem is with that mindset, you know what the problem is with that? The problem is it doesn't matter what you want the Word of God to do. It's going to do what it wants to do. It's going to accomplish the purpose that God gave it. It's going to discern your heart whether you want it to or not. Because all of us must give an account at the end. And it will discern whether we wanted it to or not. So how should we respond, Ben? How should we respond to the Word of God? What, 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 what is the answer? How do we respond to the Word of God? We should invite God's Word to enter into our hearts. We should invite God's Word to enter into our minds. We should invite God's Word to pierce us and go into the deepest parts of ourselves, into the joints and the marrow and the soul and the spirit. We should invite the Word of God to discern our thoughts and our minds. Why? Because if we allow the Word of God to, to do that, to go into the deepest parts of ourselves, you know what will happen? We will mold ourselves into the image of Jesus. Into the Word. Who is the Word? Jesus is the Word. We will mold ourselves into the image of Christ. Who is the one who provides this rest? Who is the one who provides this better rest for who? All those who are faithful and obedient. How do we respond to the Word of God? What is it going to reveal about us one day? Because whether we want it to or not, it's going to reveal something. What does the Bible say? It would have been better to have not known than to have known and turned away. Jesus is the only one who can fix our heart problems. We all have them. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He was the one who endured the cross. He was the one who despised the shame. He is the one who is at the right hand of the throne of God. But He is also the one that can allow our sins to be let down. All the sins that so easily ensnare us, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's the message of Hebrews chapter 4. I appreciate your attention tonight. Uh, next week we're going to be talking about chapters 5 and 7 and the end of chapter 4 as we try to understand how Jesus is better than any other high priest that's ever lived. That's it for tonight. We're going to have a closing prayer by Brother Stan.